0: Well, beloved, it's been eight weeks in a row and so by now you should know to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8 And let's stand together And we will read this morning verses 28 through 34 And then we'll pray and uh, we'll dig into This text together this morning Paul writes and he says and we know That for those who love god all things work together for good For those who are called according to his purpose For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Heavenly Fathers, we come to your word. We we confess to you that this is father your word is a treasure it is an immense gift it is lord god just remarkable that you have given to us this revelation that we can hold in our hands that we can study that we can read this way by which you help us and make us to understand who you are and your character and all that you have done In your word, we see, we behold the glories and the wonders of Christ as our prophet and our priest and our king, as our redeemer, as our savior, as our Lord. Father, as we read this word, our minds and our souls are renewed and our faith is strengthened and you make us more and more. You conform us more and more as you apply your holy word to us into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Your your word is truly a gracious gift. And God, I am thankful for the way. I'm thankful for the way that, Lord, when we come to worship you, Father, we don't have to go through certain incantations or motions or, you know, whatever else. Father, we simply call out to you as your children. We simply praise you as your children. And you are enthroned in our midst. You delight to make yourself known and present with your people. And I thank you for that. I praise you, Lord God, that... You know, you have you have drawn us to you by irresistible cords of grace. Father, if it were not for you drawing us, if it were not for you, Father, opening our eyes and, and unstopping our ears and, and bringing us to you in faith, Father, we would never come. We're just in awe of you, and we're in awe of you in every way. We are grateful, Father, that you've given us the Spirit of God to dwell within us. To lead us and to guide us into righteousness. To open up and, and to, to teach to us the, the very words of God because we know that, you know, the natural man, the, the, the word of God to the natural man, the truth of God to a natural man is folly, but to the one who has the spirit. Father God, this is truth and life. I am pleading with you today as we look at this text this morning that you would, Father, draw our, our eyes heavenward. That Lord God, you would just, you would just emblazoned christ before our eyes that you would magnify your work of grace in the lives of your children that lord we would hear these words and we would be astonished by them and grateful for them i'm i'm praying lord that that you would exalt your faithfulness before us today and i'm praying lord god that you would use me as an instrument to faithfully and accurately and powerfully preach your word. I pray that you would take these words that I'm about to say and that, Lord, you would give strength to them by your spirit and that, Father God, they would be faithful to your will and to your desires and that, Lord God, this word would go forth, your word would go forth with power and accomplish the purpose for which you intend it. So I'm asking you, Father, please, to empty me of myself and my own strength and my own reliance upon me and to fill me with your Holy Spirit. Father, to make me to be in every way led and directed by the Spirit of God. And that, in that, Lord, you will be exalted. We'll hear what we need to hear. And we'll respond as we need to respond. I praise you, God. I thank you for your great grace to a sinner like me. I am grateful for forgiveness For a wretch like me. And I am grateful, Lord God, for acceptance. And I'm grateful for this great privilege to preach your word. Let us not take this time, any of us, for granted. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You be seated. You know, beloved, we, we have heard and we have studied some really amazing theology in the last eight weeks. Right? I mean, we have considered some, man, remarkable doctrine as we have walked through this 8th chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans, right? But now we come to, really, the question that demands an answer. We come to the question that demands an answer. And Paul says, very simply, in the first half of verse 31, look at it, What then shall we say to these things? In other words, here's what Paul's getting at. This isn't obviously, this isn't the first time, in fact, in the book of Romans that Paul has done this. He asks this question quite often. What then? What shall we say then? What shall we do then? He asks this question a lot. And here's the point. After he's presented some doctrine, after he's expounded some theology, right? Paul is saying, what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with what you have just heard? What then? What shall we say to all of these things? And the reason he does it, beloved, is this. It's because revelation demands a response, right? Right? Theology demands application, right? Like, just knowing theology is not enough. Just having an understanding, perhaps, of the facts of revelation, like, that's not enough. It is, it is a, it's a dangerous thing. Beloved, to fail to deal with the word of God. It really is it to fail to to to, you know, give it the weight that it deserves. And here's why. First of all, and John prayed this. It is because what we are looking at when we read the word of God is the inerrant, infallible, God breathed word. It's the truth of God. It is the ground of reality and of truth. It is the ground of what actually is. There are so many people that want to act as if the word of God really has no weight. You know, the whole, you know, the bumper sticker mentality, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. You can take that middle part out. God says it, that's it. And it's a dangerous thing to know and to hear the truths that are being expounded in the Word of God, particularly what Paul is saying here, and then to go away from that Word without having truly responded to it, right? Because it's the Word of God. It's the Word of truth. And the second reason is this. You never know when it may be that it's the last time you ever hear the Word of God. tomorrow's not promised to you or me. The next minute isn't promised to any of us. You don't know when it might be the last time that you hear the word of God. The last time you have an opportunity to respond to the word of God. People in hell wish they had one more shot. Every one of them. Well, it's not enough to merely hear the word of God preached or simply take notes or accumulate scriptural knowledge. There's got to be a response. Theology is meant to shape our lives, right? It's meant to shape our thinking and our living and our acting. What we hold as true, what we value. You see, here's the deal. and I'm just going to let you into the preacher's world. The, The two great desires of a faithful preacher is this. Number one, that when you stand to preach, you would rightly handle the word of truth. That's the first thing, that when you stand up to preach, you would rightly handle the word of truth so that Christ would be exalted, so that God the Father would be magnified, so that the truth would be clearly proclaimed in the ears of the hearers. And then second, that the word of God would be received by the hearers as it is, not the words of a man, but the word of the living God, and that there would be a response, a real, tangible, noticeable, fruitful response. No preacher wants a ministry like Jeremiah's where he stands up and he preaches and it tends to fall continually on deafened ears and no one responds until the judgment of God comes. Paul's saying, what will you say to this? You can't just sit there and just nod your head yes. What do you say to this? How do you respond to this? How does this affect you? How does this impact you? What do you say to these things? Because the things that Paul's speaking of here are no small matter, right? I mean, he has been referring to, you know, Paul, obviously, when he says, what will you say to these things, he's referring to what he's immediately been expounding, starting in verse 28, right? But as we said a couple of weeks ago, really Romans chapter eight is the climax of this section of, uh, of, of the book. It's the climax to the gospel that Paul has been preaching since Romans one verses 16 and 17, right? Back when he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. For faith, from faith for faith, or beginning and ending in faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul's saying, what do you say to those things? What do you say to what you have heard because this teaching that Paul has been giving, it's not only profound. It's not only mar- mar- you know, marvelous and theologically sound and a wonderful treatise and all of that. It's truth that has massive implications for every one of us. Think about what he's told us already. He's told us that we are by nature sinners, right? God, ungodly and unrighteous. We are under the just wrath of God. He says that we have guilt, we are guilty of all manner of debased and haughty sin. We've got no good works to commend us to God. No one is righteous. We are all without understanding. We do not seek God. We have made ourselves worthless. We do not do good. By nature, we have no fear of the Lord and we cannot earn or achieve the righteousness necessary to reconcile us to the Holy God. We cannot justify ourselves in His sight. We're lost and we we are without hope if it's up to us we are without hope in this world left to ourselves left to ourselves here's reality left to ourselves the only prospect that any of us has is divine judgment and eternal condemnation right that's bad news but the good news is this god hasn't left us in our wretched estate right The very righteousness that we need in order that we might be forgiven of our sins and be reconciled to God, we didn't provide, God did. He himself has provided by putting forward the Lord Jesus Christ as the propitiation, as the wrath bearer for the penalty of our sins. Praise God. So that we might receive his righteousness for there's no distinction all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. God has done that. God has reconciled us to Him. God has given to us peace and access to Him that before was denied because of our sinfulness. While we were weak, while we were ungodly, while we were sinners and enemies with God, Christ died to bring us to God. God brought us out of the sphere of Adam. He delivered us from the dominion of sin and he placed us in Christ. He put us under the reign of grace and not the reign of law and sin any longer. We have been made he has he we have been united to Christ by God to present ourselves to him for the sake of righteousness. He has made us, God has, slaves to him, so that the fruit of our lives leads to sanctification. God sustains and strengthens us in our battle with indwelling sin. He declares that there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He has given now the Holy Spirit to dwell within us, who gives spiritual life to us, who leads us to grow in likeness to Christ. He has given us the Holy Spirit as the spirit of adoption, the spirit of sonship, by which we call God, not judge, but Abba, Father, right? He has made us fellow heirs with Christ. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groans that are too deep for words. There's more. He has promised us that all things work together for our ultimate good for those who love God because God loved us first, that we would be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that Christ would be exalted and magnified above all others as the firstborn of many brothers to his everlasting praise and glory. And he guarantees all of this. God does. He guarantees it all because he has foreknown us. He has foreloved us, his people, his elect, with a sovereign, distinguishing, intimate, steadfast, unchanging, unrelinquishing, faithful love. He's predestined us. He has marked out the boundaries of our lives to this end that we would be effectually called, that we would be regenerated, that we would be made alive, that we would be summoned to life and to faith in Christ, and then He has given us the very faith by which we lay hold of Christ for salvation. He has done all of these things. And He promises yet to glorify us. He has done all these things. So what do you say to that? What do you say to this? Because you've got to say something, right? you got to say something. If you can just sit there and be unmoved, if you can just sit there and nod your head, and this doesn't thrill your soul, your soul's dead. I'm not kidding that. That is no exaggeration. That is no hyperbole. If you can hear those things, and you're just sitting there like, man, okay. I've heard all this before it's no big you are dead in your sins. You're going to hell unless you repent Unless you believe i'm not kidding. I'm not playing games. I'm telling you the truth There's no way if you're in christ you can hear those things and be like "Mm." I mean if you can what's wrong with you? No, really I mean that what's wrong with you? This is the truth man Indifference and apathy, they have no place in the face of this truth. You should be astonished. I should be astounded and amazed and overwhelmed that God would be so gracious, so merciful, so loving to sinners as such as we are. Paul expects a response. He's expecting more than a shrug of the shoulders or a yawn. And the response he wants us to have is one of supreme confidence in God. Look at this, man. In light of all of this, the response that Paul is looking for is this. Second half of verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? My goodness, in light of all of that, in light of everything that you have just described and everything that, Christ, that that Paul has just described, all that God has done to make us his children, everything that is for love, you know, his, his, his predestination, his calling, his justification, the eventual glorification, in light of all of that, my goodness, I hear that and I must say this, if God is for me, who in the world could be against me? That's what Paul is saying. And that's how we ought to respond. In fact, that word there, if, is better understood by the word since or because. In other words, listen, there is no uncertainty in this statement. It's not a hypothetical. It's a statement of fact. If all of those descriptions of all those things that God has done, if that is true of you, then God is for you. And there is not anyone that can be in any way against you in any meaningful way. There's no one that can be against you in any meaningful way. No one can frustrate the power and the plans of the sovereign, omnipotent, all-wise, unchanging, righteous, and true God. Nobody. I want you to think about how unique it is to be able to say that. You know, everybody in the world thinks God's on their side, don't they? Don't they? I mean, everybody in the world does. Every world leader that ever goes to war thinks God's on his side, right? Everybody who does anything thinks God's for them. Can I tell you what? I'm just going to be honest and say what a critical mistake that is many people often make. God's not just indiscriminately for everybody. God's not just indiscriminately for everyone. He's not. He's for his people. And we've heard how that is so, right? I just read to you how it's so. God's for his people, but he's not for everyone. And because he's for us, because he's for his people, there's nobody who can be truly against us in any meaningful way. Now, there are people who try. There are enemies that try, right? I mean, Paul is not saying, look, there is no opposition at all to you As for those of you who are in Christ. No, there are formidable enemies. There are real adversaries, right? The world, you know, the devil, our own flesh, Right? Think about it. We live in a world, a sinful world system, right? A people, among a people who are under the sway of Satan, governments and, and society, the culture, prevailing immorality, the media and, the, and human philosophy, they're all forever endeavoring to do what? Well, to, to draw us away from God, to kill and destroy our faith, to keep us from serving Christ, to infiltrate our thinking, to infiltrate our believing, to infiltrate our acting. In subtle and overt ways, sometimes very seductive, other other times very threatening, right? Misrepresenting or slandering or ridiculing in order to conform us to its image. Man, the world is an enemy that we will fight until, praise God, he takes us out of this world. Charles Spurgeon said, listen, do not expect men to be friends of your piety. Or, if they are, sus- suspect the reality of that piety of which ungodly man is a friend. You see what he's saying? If you're truly godly, don't don't expect ungodly men to be your friend. But if you're truly godly and ungodly men just love you to death, love you to pieces, then you ought to be suspect of that piety that you say you have. You must expect, he says, to be sometimes bullied and sometimes coerced, to be sometimes flattered and other times threatened. You must expect at one time to meet with the oily tongue, which has under it the drawn sword, and at other times with just the drawn sword itself. Look out and expect that men will be against you. And yet what does the Lord Jesus Christ say? What does the Lord Jesus Christ say about the world? He says, well, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, what? I have overcome the world. I've overcome it. The apostle John, I just have to believe that the apostle John heard that and took those words to heart. You know, because that's why he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in first John chapter five, verses four and five, these words, for everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that's overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? Amen. Sure, we'll we'll wrestle with the world. We face the, the devil and his demons, his influence and his cunning in this present age. Listen, Satan is a malignant and he is a wicked enemy, is he not? Peter says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Of course he does. He's a liar and a murderer from the beginning, isn't he? He's crafty. He skillfully knows how to bait the hook. He knows human nature better than we do because he studied it from its inception. But you know what? He's a defeated foe, isn't he? Isn't he? He's a defeated foe awaiting his judgment. Satan can go no further than the Lord permits. Do no more than the Lord allow. The devil is God's devil. And he's on a chain. And he can only do what God permit. And more than that, we have an armor. The armor of God. That's fitted especially to deal with his schemes. We have a Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason that our Savior, the Son of God, appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities. He put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. There's the world. There's Satan. And then there's our old sinful flesh, right? Right? And you can't get rid of that, can you? It just follows you around. We fight and we war against sinful desires. We we wrestle with the remnants of our old man, right? We do. If if you're in Christ and you're seeking to live a godly life, listen to me, this is the reality. You're in a fight, right? We know that. We know that the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. They're opposed to each other to keep us from doing the things that we want to do, right? But we fight in the Spirit and we take our flesh captive to the desires of the Spirit. And we put sin to death, you know, so that we might pursue holiness and obedience to the Lord. We hear Paul say to us earlier in Romans, Let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions, right? That do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. And we hear that and we say yes and amen. Even though our sinful flesh cannot overturn the invincible power, even our sinful flesh, I mean, even our, the sin that we commit, cannot overturn the invincible power and purpose of God. I mean, how could it? Think about it, beloved. Think about it like this. If God were for us, even while we were yet His enemies, if God was for us, even while we were yet in bondage to our sin, and had no regard for holiness or righteousness, and we sinned with abandonment, Abandoned. How will he not be for us now that we are his sons and daughters and desire to live in a way that pleases him, although we yet stumble and fall? Beloved, if we've been reconciled to God when we were yet sinners, we cannot be unreconciled to God now that we are his sons and his daughters. Look, the enemies are real, right? And they're formidable to us, the world, the flesh, The devil. They're formidable to us, but but not to God. Not to God. They're defeated foes under His authority, in submission to Him, finite in their power, right? But the Lord is infinite in His might. They can threaten and discourage. They can harass and attack. But what can any of these opponents do in an ultimate sense to separate us from the love, the plan, and the purpose of God for us? And the answer to that is what? Nothing. Nothing. Even the things that they do fall under the promise of Romans 8.28. How about that? Even the things they do fall under the promise of Romans 8.28. They're weapons against us. God fashions for our ultimate good. In order that he might conform us to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our enemies are just tools in his hand. That's all they are. Under his sovereign control and direction. And what they mean for evil. God turns to good in ways that we cannot even begin to know fully right now but one day we will you know what i think about it like this when i think about the idea that you know if god is for us who can be against us i think of the scene in the movie the lion king how many of y'all ever saw the movie the lion king right not the cheesy stop action one with human people i mean the actual good cartoon one y'all see that yeah yeah there's, I, don't, I have no, many, no idea how many times I watched that movie with Sam, Jake, and John, but to say on the order of hundreds is not a lie. Like, I mean, over and over and over we would watch this movie. But there is one scene in this movie, right, where Simba, you know, the young cub is cornered by a bunch of hyenas, and they're harassing him, they're going to kill him, right? And he's trying to defend himself and his girlfriend, Nala. You know, they're both off the reservation, not where they're supposed to be, and hyenas are coming out to get him, right? And, and and he's trying to scare the hyenas away, and and he attempts this pitiful excuse, you know, for a roar. You remember the scene, and this little pathetic comes out, right? And then all of a sudden, it is superseded by this massive, you know, ear-splitting roar, right? And all of a sudden, the picture pans back to see Simba's father, Mufasa, standing behind him. And immediately, all the hyenas are like, out of there quick, right? They they take off. They're exposed as being a total mismatch for Mufasa's power, right? Under the protection of Mufasa, the pack of hyenas was nothing, right? Beloved, in a far greater way, that God is for us means that there is now... No one and nothing of any consequence that can be against us no matter how loud it howls, no matter how much it menaces, or no matter how fearful it may seem. Nothing. What is everything that is against us if God is for us, really? In a moment, all those things that cause us to shake and quake and fear, in a moment, in God's eyes, They're all going to be gone. There'll be nothing. And yet he remains. And in Christ, so do you. Beloved, they're just an army of nothings and no ones, vainly shaking their fists at the supremely glorious and almighty God. The only thing that matters to any of us, the only thing that should matter to any of us, and no matter what circumstances we're in, is this. God is for me. God is for me. God is, I know God is for me. He has proven it. I have no right to doubt Him. I have no right to believe that He is not for me when He has already demonstrated more times than I can even number that He is. He is. He is. is. What greater security do you need than that? Really, what greater security do you need than that? It's because God is for us that we can actually say such things as what is written, for instance, in Psalm 27 and believe them. Like if you don't believe that God is for you, then these words are empty. But when you know that he is, these words have life. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Or Psalm 46, right? If I know, if I believe God is for me, Then when I read this, these words, man, they give spiritual steel to my soul. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Let it go. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Or Psalm 118, verses 6 and 7. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. The only way you can say that with confidence is if you believe God is for me. That's why this matters. Only Christians, those whom God is for, can say in truth and confidence, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me bless his holy name bless the Lord O my soul and forget not all those benefits Who forgives all your iniquity who heals all your diseases who redeems your life from the pit Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles That god is for us this Is why we can believe the words of the lord when he says no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. Think about that. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. Well, you might say, well, that's just for Isaiah. No, no. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me declares the Lord. Only the children of God can say those things, can believe those things, because they're true only of us, and they should feed our faith and our courage in this evil age. I think about, there's a story from the, from the life of the fourth century preacher, John Chrysostom. It's a great story. Oh, that we would have the, the faith-filled confidence of him. It's, the story is told of him when he was arrested and he was brought before the Byzantine emperor, Arcadius, and his wife, Eudoxia. She's about as likable as her name sounds. Eudoxia, right? And threatened by the empress with banishment. If he would not deny his faith in Christ, Christ assumed, he replied and said, You cannot banish me. For the world is my father's house. The empress said, But I will kill you. And he replied, No, you cannot. For my life is hid with Christ in God. I will will take away all of your treasures, she said. Again, Chrysostom replied, no, you cannot. For my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. But I will drive you away from all your friends and you will have no one left, Eudoxia said. No, you cannot, said John. For I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you. For there is nothing you can do to harm me. Oh, that we had that kind of courage. Right? That kind of confidence in God. He understood the meaning of the words, God is for us, didn't he? Below, God's for us, he can't be against his own children. He's chosen us. He will not let us go. And Paul, he wants us to know this. And so he gives to us, look, the ultimate guarantee that it's true that God is for us is found in what Paul says next. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser, right? Look at it. Tying this nut this knot tightly that God is for us, Paul asks in verse 32 He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us? All things. Paul's saying, look, you know what? If you really want to know whether or not God is for you, here's the proof. God didn't spare his own son. He gave him up for you. God did not spare his own son. Do You want to know if God is for you? In what way could God prove more greatly that he is? You know, for some reason, I don't know why this is, all the modern tr- translations of the Bible ignore this Primary particle of emphasis that is in the Greek sentence at the beginning of it. There's this little particle. It's a. It's a, in English letters. It's a G and an E. And it means surely or doubtlessly or indeed. And because they kind of leave it out, it lessens a little bit the impact of what Paul is saying. In the Greek, this sentence actually reads... Doubtlessly, he did not he did, who did not spare his own son, or surely he who did not spare his own son, or indeed he who did not spare his own son. How will he not give not not with him give us all things? How could you possibly think that he wouldn't give us all things? That's the idea. Now, I want you to see what Paul does here, beloved, because this is very important. I want you to see what he does here. We as a society are addicted to feels, aren't we? We're addicted to emotion. We're addicted to a certain, you know, feeling that we need to have or some kind of, you know, whatever that needs to well up in us and flow over us and and whatever. And everything's fine as long as I'm feeling a certain way, right? Right? I want you to see what Paul does here. He ties this knot tightly with theology, doesn't he? He ties it tightly with doctrine. Not with feelings or suppositions. Not with vague or nebulous references to God's love. Not with some, well, God is love and God loves everybody and God loves, you know, and I'm just going to tell you all these things about love that aren't actually derived from Scripture. He doesn't do any of that. He ties the knot with the knot with theology with doctrine that's why whenever anybody says to me i don't need to know theology i don't need to know doctrine i just want to you know just tell me about jesus listen to me it is impossible to tell you anything about jesus without teaching to you theology and doctrine otherwise what i'm teaching you is my imaginary version of who jesus is right praise god when paul is dealing with and tying the cinch in the knot tight regarding this truth that God is for us, He does it with divine truth because it's divine truth that we need, beloved, not sentimentalities and human suppositions. Those won't get you anywhere. The Roman Christians to whom He was writing... They were facing great problems and hardships and persecutions, they needed more than just vagaries and fads and philosophical notions to assure them of God's love for them. They wouldn't do for them and they won't do for us either. And so Paul points them to the great demonstration of God's love and grace, saying in effect, here you go. Here's the measure of God's love for you. Here's how you know that God is for you. It's because God did not withhold. God did not keep back. God did not spare His own Son in the work of your redemption for the sake of your salvation, because He loved you with an everlasting love. He did not spare His Son what was required for your redemption he had to do it all we're familiar with that word spare you know what it means right you spare your children spare the rod you what spoil the child sometimes parents do Sometimes we, we, we spare our children when they don't, we don't punish them as they deserve. Judges sometimes spare criminals when they assign a, a lesser sentence than they're due. But God didn't spare his own son. Let that sink in. God did not spare his own beloved son. His son in whom he has always been perfectly well pleased. His son his true and unique Son whom He has infinitely loved for all of eternity. The Son with whom He has been face to face in perfect communion from time immemorial until the incarnation and the one in whom He delights. His Son who is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. For our sake, God did not spare His own son what does that mean well it means he didn't spare him first of all the indignity of the incarnation the humiliation of God becoming man he didn't spare him to demand that he live and endure in a world of sin and iniquity and wretchedness He did not spare him from living among God-haters and lovers of evil in this world under the sway of Satan. He didn't spare him from the obligation to live faithfully every jot and tittle of the law. He did not spare his own son the life of a homeless, itinerant preacher... Didn't spare him the contempt and hatred and dishonor of men. The grief and the sorrow. The groundless, repetitive accusations. The betrayal of a man who professed to be his best friend. God didn't spare his son the shameful death of the cross. Or even being buried in a borrowed tomb. He did not spare his own son. Paul says he gave him up for us all. I want you to understand the strength of what Paul is saying here. Because that word give, gave, is the exact same word that Paul uses in Romans chapter 1 to describe God delivering sinners over to the lusts of their hearts. He gave his own son over for us. Delivered him over for us. Well, to whom or to what? Well, to Judas. And to the Jews, and to the Romans, and to the Pharisees, to the Sadducees, and to Caiaphas, and to Pilate, and to the forces of darkness, into the hands of evil men. Acts chapter 4 verse 28 says, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God gave his son over. He gave him up according to his own purpose. And Peter captures it perfectly in Acts chapter 2 and verse 23. In that great sermon at Pentecost. When he says to the assembled multitude. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan. And foreknowledge of God you crucified. And killed by the hands of lawless men. I want you to see that. Yes, lawless men crucified the Lord of glory, right? Right? But behind it all was the Father. His definite plan and His foreknowledge. Behind it all was the Father who gave up His own Son for us all. The Father who delivered His Son over to divine wrath and to utter forsakenness upon the cross so that we might not be forsaken. It is because God is for us. It is because of His choosing and His saving love. Love set upon us before the foundation of the world that God did not spare His own Son. His beloved Son. His glorious Son. And ultimately, from the full force of the wrath and the fury of God the Father Himself. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Our guilt, our blame was imputed to him. Our sins. Were laid upon his head, the divine wrath that our sins demand was poured out in full upon our substitute, the lamb of God who suffered the pangs of death and eternal wrath in our place. How little I would say to you, how little we truly understand the price paid for our redemption. How little we know of the sufferings of Christ on our behalf. This one who from all of eternity had known only the pure and infinite love of the Father while on the cross. Mystery of mysteries. While still being the beloved of God, experienced the full fury of the Father's hatred, wrath, judgment, and desertion. It was not play-acting, beloved, when Christ cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's not play-acting. No one has ever borne such weight. No one. No one has ever borne such suffering. No one has ever known such pain and agony. The beloved Son of God, forsaken and turned over to the full fury and wrath of His own Father. Who can understand that? That cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It went on answer. Beloved, we know the answer. To spare His people, God must not spare His Son. It had to be that way. It was God's divine plan. Divine redemption requires justice, not just mere sentimentality. Not just brushing our sin under the rug or looking the other way. It requires justice. It requires inflexible justice. Full satisfaction for sin. Unbending judgment. And so according to the plan of God, in our place, condemned Christ stood. I have heard so-called theologians foolish heretics say things like well that's just divine child abuse or I'll never believe in a God who would sacrifice his own son that's barbaric such a God would be a moral monster Those people speak of what they do not know and flippantly and foolishly and irreverently and blasphemously. That God did not spare his own son is not an act of divine capriciousness or cruelty or malice. It is the greatest act of of love if he spare his son at all if he spare his son at all in any bit if he ameliorate his suffering to any degree we are not spared God has loved us with an everlasting love from before the foundation of the world. He chose us in love to redeem us so that we would belong to Him as His own people. And there was no way, there was no other possibility by which we could be redeemed than by Christ's penal substitutionary atonement. His penal substitutionary atonement. His penal, that means penalty bearing, wrath extinguishing substitutionary on our behalf in our place atonement his sacrifice to bring us to god paul is saying look there's no way that we can ever doubt the love and the faithfulness of god to us his people when he has given to us the inexpressible gift of his own son for our salvation rather what we should say is this what love is this that god did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all that's a holy love that's a shocking love who's the us all who's the us all that he's talking about some people hear that and they say they conclude well paul is saying that god gave his son up he did not spare his son but he gave him up for every single sinner in the world that's ever lived That on the cross that Jesus bore the sins of everybody that would ever live and die. But that is not what Paul is saying. That view lacks wisdom. It is contrary to scripture. And it in fact dilutes the very force of what Paul is saying here. Think about it. If Christ died for the sins... Of every single person who has ever lived. Then what must be the result? That every single person would be what? Saved. And we know that's not true. If Christ paid the penalty of sin. Even for those who perish in rebellion and unbelief. Then God would be unjust. To judge anyone and send them to hell why because christ would have paid for their sins upon the cross and then god would have required them to pay for their sins for an eternity in hell it's illogical it's foolish and it's unscriptural The judge of the world cannot be unjust. If it's true that Christ died for the sins of every single person, then everyone would be in heaven. Because even their sin of unbelief for which they are condemned would have been paid for by the sacrifice of Christ. You with me? It doesn't make any sense. Some say, well, actually what happened was is that Christ died to open up the possibility of salvation for all people. That's what that means. That when Jesus died, God gave His Son up For us all to open up the possibility of salvation for all people. As if God is now sitting in heaven and saying, well... You know, wringing his hands and saying, well, you know, I've done everything that I can in Christ to save people. And now it's just up to them. I hope someone responds. I hope somebody will be saved. Beloved, Christ did not die in the hope that maybe someone might respond. Perhaps... If they're feeling good to his sacrifice. In fact, that goes against everything that we've been seeing in Romans. Doesn't it? Doesn't it? Go like this. Make me believe you've heard everything that I said in Romans. It ignores, doesn't it? The definitive cry upon the cross that Jesus made. Tetelestai. It is finished. It is paid in part. Part. Paid in full. It ignores the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ when he said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for who? For the sheep. It disregards the words of the angel to Joseph when he's convincing him that the child that was in Mary's womb was the son of God. And he said, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. See, it all comes down to this question. Is Christ a real Savior, or is he just a potential Savior? Did he actually accomplish something? Or did he just potentially accomplish something? And the testimony of Scripture... Through and through. Is that the Lord Jesus Christ did something. That he is a real, actual, definite savior of his people. Who is this, us all, that Paul is talking about? Well, the answer is simple when you keep it in context, isn't it? Context is king, beloved, right? Context, context, context. The us all are those for whom God works everything together for good. It's those whom love God, who love God. It's those whom he has called according to his purpose. And who are they? They're those whom he has foreknown for love before the foundation of the world and chosen in Christ, his elect, whom he predestined and called and justified and glorified. It is a particular people upon whom he has placed His everlasting and unchanging and salvific love. It is the whole of the true church, chosen in eternity, redeemed in time, reconciled sinners who make up the body of Christ throughout the world and throughout the ages. Right? The us all is a clearly defined, specific people for whom Christ died. And when we know that, when we know that, it gives proper weight to this. In other words, we need to see, beloved, that Christ's sacrifice by nature of his person, it is absolutely infinite in power, right? But it is limited in scope. It's infinite in power, but it's limited in scope to those whom God chose in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Those who in love he predestined for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. In other words, here's the deal. God is for us. He demonstrates clearly that he is for us and that he gave up. He did not spare, but he gave up his own son for us. But Hear me when I say this. Not a single drop of blood that Christ shed on the cross was shed in vain. Every drop accomplished its purpose. God's giving of His Son was with divine purpose and effect. It was a purchasing, cleansing, saving, triumphant and victorious death that accomplished the actual salvation for those whom His blood was shed. It was a definite atonement that the Lord Jesus Christ made upon the cross for the sins of those whom God had given Him to redeem. That is the heart of particular redemption or limited atonement, however you want to refer to it. And Steve Lawson summed it up perfectly when he said the intent of the cross defines the extent of the cross. The intent of the cross was the actual salvation of those chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And the extent of the cross, the work of Christ on the cross reached that far. Fully, completely. And no further. According to God's definite plan. Now, let's get the force now of what Paul is saying here. He's saying, "Look, man, you need to understand that God is for you in the way that you know that he is for you for every true Christian, not for everybody in the whole world indiscriminately, but for you specifically, because God loves you with a special steadfast covenant love. Not because of anything you did, just simply because he loves you. The way that you know that he is for you is that he did not spare his own son, his own beloved son, but he gave him up for you that you would be saved and spared and made a child of God. You are special, but not because of anything in you. You're spe- you are special. And I mean that in a good way. Like sometimes you say, man, that kid's special. Right No, that's not what I'm saying. Listen. You are special, but not for the reasons people think they're special. You hear me? You're special, but not for the reasons people think they're special. You're special because... If you're in Christ... God has chosen you with an everlasting, unfailing love... from before the foundation of the world. He gave His Son up for you. He didn't spare Him a thing so that you might be spared. And you can be sure... That if he did all that, God is not going to drop the ball now. He's not. Think on that. Meditate on that. Be amazed by that. And as you do, Paul says, you'll come to the proper conclusion. And what is it? Well, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I mean, if God has demonstrated that he is for us by giving us the inexpressible gift of his love, how will he refuse to graciously give us everything else that we need? I mean, he's already given us the greatest gift. Do you really think that he's going to keep back what we really need? Of course not. And what are those all things? Well... You know, prosperity pimps, they pull this verse out of out of context and they make it to say what it doesn't claim at all, right? They'll use this as one of those proof texts for the whole name it and claim it heresy and they'll say, well, those are all things they refer to like health and power and wealth and success and social standing and self-image and all that. I wonder how that all worked out for the Roman Christians that heard this. Context doesn't allow for that at all. That's not what he's saying. The all things of which Paul is speaking are those things that are necessary for us to fulfill the purpose of God for our lives, whatever is necessary for us to be conformed to the image of Christ, whatever grace is necessary in every circumstance and situation, everything we need for life and godliness, God will give it to us. He's already given us the greatest gift of all. What's he going to keep back that we desperately need? In fact, the Puritan, John Flavel, said this. He said, Surely, if he would not spare this own son one stroke, one tear, one groan, one sigh, one circumstance of misery, it can never be imagined that ever he should after this deny or withhold from his people for, for whose sakes all this was suffered by Christ. Any mercies or comforts or privilege, spiritual or temporal, which is good for them. He's right, it makes no sense. In His love for us, God has overcome the problem of our condemnation by the giving of His Son for us, the costlier gift by far. And if that's so, God's purpose, not only to justify us, but eventually to glorify us and bring us to glory, won't be thwarted by anyone or by anything. God will have His people, and He will not let us go. And he will provide for us every necessary thing that we need to preserve us in his love and his purpose and his plan. If he has lavishly provided for us while we were his enemies, how much more will he provide now that we're his sons and daughters? John MacArthur perfectly states it. He says, God's already given the best. He's already given the most. He's certainly not going to hold back the least. And he's certainly not going to undo the work of the son. If the son died on the cross, he says, follow this and actually paid the penalty for your sins for God to turn around and let you go would be to depreciate and undo what the son had accomplished to say nothing of disdaining the supreme sacrifice that the son of God himself would bear the punishment for our sin. Since he delivered his son up for us all to save us, will he not also, along with his son, give us whatever we need to get us to glory? Whatever grace it takes, whatever strength it takes, whatever wisdom it takes. And the answer is obvious, right? Of course not. Of course not. For him to do less would make him not God. So at the end of this message, we go back to the original question. What shall we, us, in this room, what do we say to these things? What do you personally say to these things? How do you respond? Charles Spurgeon said it's impossible for any human speech to bring out the depth of the meaning Of how God is for us. It's impossible. There are not enough words in the human vocabulary. He was for us before the worlds were made. He was for us or else. He never would have given his son. He was for us. Even when he struck the only begotten. And laid the full weight of his wrath upon him. He was for us. Though he was against him. He was for us when we were. Ruined in the fall, He loved us, notwithstanding it all. He was for us when we were against Him and with a high hand were defying Him. He was for us or else He never would have brought us humbly to seek His face. He has been for us in many struggles. We have had to fight through multitudes of difficulties. We have had temptations from without and within. How could we have held on until now if He had not been with us? He is for us, let me say, with all the infinity of His heart, with all the omnipotence of His love. He's for us with all His boundless wisdom, arrayed in all the attributes which make Him God. He's for us, eternally and immutably for us. He's for us when those blue skies shall be rolled up like a worn-out vesture. He's for us throughout eternity. Here, child of God, is subject matter enough for thought, even though you had ages to meditate upon it. God is for you and if God is for you who can be against you you know there are some denominations that teach that you can lose your salvation somebody truly saved can then be cast away and lost someone who's truly been made a child of God can be unmade a child of God someone who has been born again can be unborn again you hear how foolish that is right We can't lose our salvation. And the reason we can't, beloved, is because our salvation is ultimately due to God's faithfulness and love for us and not our own. Yeah, we're called to endure. We're called to persevere. We are called to be steadfast, to be faithful, to be obedient and the like. And we must. But you know what? Even that endurance is just simply the evidence of God's powerful and sustaining hand In our lives. His power at work in and through us. Fulfilling his plan. To make us and keep us as his own. We're not faithful in our own strength. Why do you think God had to give the Holy Spirit to us to dwell within us? It wasn't just a, here's an extra gift. It's a desperately needed one. He is a desperately needed one. When we struggle with doubts and fears. We all do. When we falter and we sin. When we face the fires of temptation and trial. When we endure what Paul describes later as tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger and sword. And when the ground threatens to, you know, ground underneath us threatens to give way. What do you do in that moment? Well, I just, I try to feel good feelings. And I try to think good thoughts. And I try... No. You know what you do? You go back to the bedrock, unassailable, unmistakable truth that God is for us. You go back to theology and not feelings, to doctrine and not emotions, and you fill your mind with the truth, and you fill your soul with doctrinal fact, And what? The feelings do what? They follow. And the proof is that even when we were sinful wretches and haters and rebels against God, the proof that He is for us, that He loved us, is that He did not spare His Son, but gave Him up for us all. He saved us. We didn't save ourselves, and we cannot keep ourselves saved. He did, and He will. He'll not abandon us. He'll give us all things necessary to keep us tethered to Him by the unbreakable cords of His grace and His love. Because God's for us, we can go to Him. Man, we can go to Him and we can ask Him for that which we need. And we can know that if He has given His Son for us the greatest gift of His grace, He'll give us whatever we need. The the love, the fortitude, the wisdom, the strength, the guidance, the hope, all of it. The patient endurance to make it to glory. Because he's a faithful, covenant-keeping, gracious God. He's our Father. And he won't withhold any good thing from us. Because to do that, after he's already given us the greatest gift in Christ, would be to depreciate the gift of Christ. And God the Father's not about to do that. God's for you. He's for you. Trust in him. Believe in what he's done. Believe in what he'll do. Trust that he has proven that he is for you. And you know what? In gratitude and discontentment and confusion and fear and worry and anxiety, they will all meet their doom in God's inextinguishable love. I'd be remiss, however, if I did not say this before I close. These words are rightly a wonder and an encouragement to those who are in Christ, Right? They are. But there is an opposite to this truth that is terrifying. And I fear it applies to some of us who are in this very room today and to those who are listening on the internet. And the opposite is this. If God is against you, who possibly can be for you? If God is against you, Who can possibly be for you? You may have the approval of men. You may be well thought of in this world. You may even have your own stamp of approval. What is that? It's nothing. It carries no weight with God. God is not impressed. If God is against you, What of the day when you stand before Him? If God is against you, how is it that you're going to die? If God is against you, how will you face Him? What will be your hope in that day? What will become of you in time and eternity? See, there's no middle ground here with God. And inherently, people know it. They know it. That's why people try to fool themselves and say, well, after death, there's just nothing. You're just annihilated. Oh, you're going to wish that if you're in hell. If God is against you, who's for you? Nobody that matters. Nobody that matters. There are no more terrifying words to hear than, Thus says the Lord God, I am against you. Does God say that? Yeah, read the Old Testament. Read it. I'm pleading with you. I am pleading with you. If you are here today and you do not, and you're not in Christ, you are not a surrendered person. You have not confessed your sins and repented of your sins. And turn to Jesus Christ and trust it in his perfect life and in his necessary death in order for you to be saved. If you have not died to yourself in order to trust in Christ alone and his saving work to believe in him and commit your life, body and soul to him as your savior and Lord. I am pleading with you to come to Christ today while it's yet today. Quit putting it off. Quit thinking, well, I've just got to get a few more things in line or in order. And then, I can... stop. It's not about you at all. Your power, your ability, your worthiness. It's about Christ and His power to save even the most wretched sinner. Or even the most self-righteous. I'm telling you, I'm pleading with you today. This is no game. This is not make believe. This is not just a thing we do because we live in the Bible Belt. We live in Virginia and, and every good person goes to church. It's a matter of life and death. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, Christ, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now is. Now is let's pray together father in heaven i pray that every one of us here in this room would be affected by the words truly deeply spiritually emotionally mentally factually affected by the words that we have heard today would please 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 I pray that none of us would regard the concept of God being for us as just a foregone conclusion that of course you are. It's not true of everyone. It's only true of your people. I pray that you would help us to really be able to enter into the truth of what it means that you did not spare your own son but you gave him up for your people. What that really means. The weight of that. The awe that that should create in our souls. The the magnificence of that. And therefore the guarantee that you will not keep back anything that we need. When you've already given us the greatest gift, you'll give us what we need to preserve us in your purpose, in your plan so that we might be received in glory. And I'm praying, Father, for those that are in this room that are not in Christ. And they know it. And if they don't know it, I pray you'd make them know it. And I pray, Lord God, that you would turn their hearts away from the myths and the stories that they might like to believe and to the truth of who Christ is and who they are and of the Savior that they need. And I pray, Lord God, that as we come to the Lord's Supper table this morning, that we will come able to better discern the body and the blood of Christ than we have ever been able to before. Especially because of what we have heard and seen today. I pray that we would see this for what it is. Not just a a ritual that we go through, not just some thing that we do as a church but the very picture and the definite memorial and father the great grace that it is to consider and to meditate upon and to commune with our lord whose body was broken and whose blood was shed so that we might have everlasting life. The one whom you did not spare, Father, so that we could be spared. So meet with us during this time in which we consider what we've heard. Draw forth our hearts in the way that they need to be drawn out. And then, Lord, give us grace as we come to this table today. I pray in Jesus' name.